Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Plodcast, presented by Canon Press. Greetings, I'm Douglas Wilson. This is the Plodcast, and this is not just the Plodcast. This is episode 269 of the Plodcast. So today, I want to begin our discussion by talking about election deniers and Maricopa County in Arizona. And oh, goody, I can hear you saying. <laughs> All right, so, but I'm going to come at this from a different angle. I'm not going to, I'm, I'm not going to talk about any particular disturbing things that I just recently saw or read, although I've seen a bunch. I want to talk about the sort of the broad media cultural reaction to disturbing allegations or disturbing news. Now, and you're going to have to, I want to ask you to work with me in a thought experiment and pretend you know nothing about all the shenanigans in Maricopa County. Pretend that you know nothing about Carrie Lake's um, run for government. You don't, you, you don't know any of the details about what's going on in Maricopa. And, and you're talking to somebody else who doesn't know any of that stuff either. But let's say, aside from this big blank spot when it comes to Maricopa County, that you are remarkably astute observers of the political scene, of the cultural scene, of what is going on in media, of the divisions in our country, and how different stories get played. All right? Now, let's say that in this situation, you stumble across it. We'll, we'll just pretend that you're in an, an adventure novel of some sort. Okay? And you're going to be the pursued protagonist. And you, uh, you go to Arizona, you fly to Phoenix for, I don't know, you're a dental hygienist. And you're, and you're flying there for reasons of, you're going to go to a convention for dental hygienists. You have no particular dog in any political fight. But as it happens, the hotel that you're staying in has a... Uh, a basement, and for th through a series of odd circumstances, I don't know, you're looking for the pop machine or looking for the ice machine, you uh, hit the wrong button in the elevator, and you find yourself in the basement of this hotel. And let's say you wander into a room that is full of stolen ballots, okay? And, and we'll just make this thought experiment simple for you, because the boxes are all labeled stolen ballots. <laughs> and and right near the door of um, this room that you wandered in, ice bucket, empty ice bucket in hand, you, you see a table, and on that table is a thumb drive that is labeled stolen ballots, all the stolen ballots. Okay? I'm, this is not so much, uh, I'm not trying to construct a scenario for you. I want to illustrate, I, by this scenario, I want to illustrate something else. Okay? Let's say you do the obvious patriotic thing and you take you pick up that thumb drive with all the evidence of all the stolen ballots on it. And you scamper back up to your room 
you leave the dental hygienist's convention early and you fly back to your home in Wook, Iowa or East Toad Flats, Arkansas. You're, and you've got this hot property of this thumb drive. Okay, now you've got conclusive slam dunk proof of a stolen election. And let's say you've got, uh, you've got friends, some computer nerds, and they help you look at this and they say, yep, ma'am, all, <laughs> all your friends sworn to secrecy say, yep, slam dunk. Yep, slam dunk. Yes, slam dunk. Okay, you got it. You, that's the scenario. How would you put that information into play? That's the question. That's the thought experiment. We live in a time when everything is so politicized that you would be labeled conspiracy theorist number one, it, even if you had the goods. All right. So I, what I'm, I'm not talking about Maricopa. I'm talking about everybody's reaction to Maricopa or everybody's reaction to any monkey shines in any particular place. Everybody, it's really striking. Everybody knows what positions to occupy within hours, right? They, so uh, um, another example of this kind of thing happened during COVID. In the early, it, it, it just astonishes me how when the, COVID, uh, when the COVID pandemic first hit, what struck me was how an orthodoxy on what the medical ramifications might be, an orthodoxy on that formed within weeks. Right here's a virus that's supposed to be a new thing in the world. I thought I thought science uh, wanted to investigate and study and cross check and try to falsify your thesis. All no, an orthodoxy mandated and enforced with a club formed within weeks, and people started having their careers ruined and they, they started to be deplatformed and all, all all of these sorts of things. Because as soon as you challenge the narrative, they are going to come after you. And they are not going to say, well, let's investigate whether this challenge of the narrative, this challenge of the narrative is legitimate. And, and what I'm saying, I think, I think someone could acknowledge the justice of what I'm saying, even if every conspiracy theory to date that came out of Maricopa, Maricopa County was in fact a conspiracy theory. I don't think, I don't think they are, but let's just postulate that all of them are just, uh, the, the, ramifications of overheated imaginations. Let's say that that's the case. If you were given this kind of information, you would have real difficulty in putting this information into play. Now, you might say, well, yeah, but this is, this is just totally far-fetched. This would never happen. And this is the point where I bring up Hunter's laptop. What I'm, descri what I'm describing, you having a thumb drive that proves that the election in Arizona was stolen. If you had that, if you had that thumb drive, if you had that laptop, if you had that smoking gun proof, you would be treated exactly as the computer repairman who found Hunter's laptop was treated. He had the, uh, <laughs> the patriotic naivete to turn it into the authorities who then sat on it, knowing, right? Basically, that laptop was filled from top to bottom, side to side, front to back, 
with damning information. And what happened? And now we're acknowledged. Now it's being acknowledged. Okay. Uh, yeah, there's something to it. Yeah, it was his laptop. Yeah, the, there are problematic things. So m- my point is that if you found if if you found slam dunk, screwed down on all four corners proof of misdeeds of people in authority, what we now call the deep state, the chances are ten to one that it will be your life ruined and not theirs. Always will be God. So continuing on with episode 269 of the podcast, uh, in our study of homartiology, we sometimes encounter words that can refer to righteous behavior, but which are not used that way in the New Testament. Today's word is epithanatios, which means appointed for death. Appointed for death. Now, um, this, well, Paul uses it once to refer to the treatment that he got, which, given the circumstances, was manifestly unjust treatment. So that's why I'm using it in our study of sin. Uh, 1 Corinthians 4.8, For I think that God hath set forth us, the apostles, last, as it were, appointed to death. There it is. For we are made a spectacle unto the world, and angels, and to men. So Paul went around the Roman Empire doing good. As this was obviously intolerable, many sought to kill him. And sometimes they wanted to do it through an ambuscade. Other times they tried to do, uh, other times they tried to use legal machinery to accomplish their purpose, as had been done with the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus was run through a trial. It was a uh, kangaroo trial. It was an illegal trial. In the middle of the night, they they weren't allowed to do that kind of thing. It was it wasn't a righteous trial, but they they tried to use the appearance of legitimacy by killing Jesus by legal means. But to ambush him on the road would have been uh, illegal, highly irregular, but that's, uh, that's another example of Paul saying he was appointed to death. But just because the machinery might be legal, that doesn't mean that the murder is legal. So here, if, if someone, uh, Paul says elsewhere, uh, he says somewhere in the book of Acts, if I've done anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. So if he had been a murderer or some somebody guilty of a capital crime and he was appointed to death, you could use this word, appointed to death, and the word would not refer to a sin. Okay, But if you have a righteous apostle, someone who's doing good the way the Lord Jesus, what's he doing? He's planting churches. He's teaching people to live righteous lives. He's teaching them to obey the emperor, right? Yeah, he's doing this sort of thing. And obviously, he's an enemy of the state. He's, he's got to be uh, dealt with. And he is appointed to death. And that is clearly uh, a sinful way of proceeding. God don't never change. He's God. So, uh, the book review uh, that I want to give this time is a. Um, I don't know. I've been I've done enough of these podcasts. It's even conceivable that I've reviewed this book before. But it's time time to talk about it again, and you'll see why in a minute. I just recently finished again the book Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, and Pilgrim's Progress is the kind of book that doesn't just repay a visit or two; it repays visit after visit after visit after visit. I think it is a work of towering 
genius. There are times in the book where you find yourself in the middle of an intramural 17th century debate, but most of the time, the issues are timeless. Bunyan wrote much of this book when he was uh, in prison for preaching the gospel, and he wasn't in prison for preaching the gospel in a pagan country. He was in prison for preaching the gospel in a Christian country, and his particular offense was preaching the gospel without a license. He refused to accept that kind of control over the gospel preaching, and so because he would um, he would continue to preach the gospel without a license, he was imprisoned, and he wrote in prison. And one of the things he wrote was this classic uh, book, Pilgrim's Progress. This is uh, this in, this information might be old, but within my lifetime, at one time, Pilgrim's Progress was aside from the Bible, uh, the best-selling book of all history. It has really gotten staying power. Now, this is hard for some of the cool kids to to deal with, Uh, the cool kids being some of those Christians who are attracted to the arts. And um, Pilgrim's Progress is hard for them to deal with. And And the reason it's hard for them to deal with is because our modern tastes find allegory, explicit allegory, uncongenial. We, we don't like that kind of explicit allegory. So um, Bunyan has characters like um, faithful or hopeful or Christian. On the other side, you have Mr. Worldly Wise Man or pliable or talkative or ignorance. And so it's, you feel like you're looking at an old-time political cartoon with labels sticking out of everybody's shirt collar to identify that this is big oil, or this this is the steel interest, or this is the uh, uh, corrupt politician, <laughs> you know, and and we think, well, why why do you, why why do you just hand it to us like that? Why why do you uh, do this? Well, we're just showing we're not um, really objecting to an objectionable art form. What we're doing is we're demonstrating our provincialism. There are there are eras where explicit allegory is um, wildly popular, and people wrote a lot of them. John Bunyan wrote one, and this one that he wrote was a really, really good one. And consequently, it captured the imagination of many people. It really um, has helped shape the English, the Western English-speaking mind. So I, one of the things I try to do is at some pace, it might be a more rapid pace, might be a less rapid pace, but I always want to have re, uh, rereading Pilgrim's Progress somewhere in my cycle. I, so I don't want to say, I've, oh man, I can't tell you how many times I've read it up to this point, a lot, many times. And I just put it back on my shelf. And I don't want to say, there, I've done that. Okay, okay I'm all done with Pilgrim's Progress. I put it back on, on my shelf with the expectation that I'm going to read it again. And uh, I think it's always edifying, always encouraging, always good, always fruitful. And as uh, C.S. Lewis points out that, that Bunyan had an almost pitch-perfect uh, ear for capturing conversation, dialogue. And, it's, it's, and I think this is actually right. And so people who, you know, people who look down on Bunyan as if not being a good example of a creative writer, when he is 
basically the the one who invented dialogue. It's it's like looking at those ancient cave paintings, you know, where the where the guy's chasing a mammoth with a spear or something, and saying, well, that's, "That's no good." You call that perspective? We we don't understand how much genius is involved in true innovation. And uh, Bunyan was just one of the world's thundering geniuses. He was just amazing. So, Pilgrim's Progress, I commend it to you. Mm-hmm.